You're listening to Pros Like Us, brought to you by NFL Draft Blitz. And now, without any further ado, here's Alex and Lou. That's right, gang. We are back and better than last week, we hope. Thank you for tuning in to this uh, number 25. We've reached the quarter pole, if you would, to our first 100 Pros Like Us shows. So we don't have a guest this week. So joining me, as always, co-host Alex Kaptov. Alex, how are you doing this week? What's going on? What's going on, Lou? I'm just... Uh been a fun weekend. Obviously, we'll talk about the Final Four later on, and... Uh, We'll, we'll hit on some football stuff. We'll talk about the Bengals, and then we'll talk about the big Sam Darnold uh, trade, obviously, and we'll, we'll see how what you think about it. Let's start with Aaron Rodgers, yeah. because it seems, like Never a- it, it seems like he's ready to trade the NFL for, for something else. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, never a dull moment, of course, you know, like you've mentioned, the, the Darnold trade, but this week... And I think we're two shows in, as we record on Wednesday. There have been two uh, shows where Aaron Rodgers, number 12 for the Green Bay Packers, is uh, hosting Jeopardy. I guess he's always been a fan of the show, had huge uh, respect for Alex Trebek, and here he is, a smart kid. I mean, obviously, we all know Cal grad, if you would. Not only does he want to just do this guest host spot, but he was talking afterwards in several shows and anybody that would listen that uh, he'd be interested in doing this full time. Uh, Furthermore, he's not ready to step away from the Packers at this point. Uh, He could certainly work it into his schedule. uh, 50 separate days during the course of the year, recording five shows a day, they could get it done. It's an interesting story. I, I watched the first two, and uh, he seems to be, again, pretty sharp dude, pretty quick-witted and so forth. But uh, I guess one of the funny things was the first night when uh, one of the contestants kind of trolled him a little bit on Final Jeopardy, where I guess the guy didn't know the, the, the question. And his question to Aaron was, who decided to kick that field goal? So it was pretty funny, right? and, and he handled it pretty well. So, but it, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. He looks like he's he's enjoying it and having having a good time, and uh, it'd be interesting to see if they, if they pick him to do it full time. You think the Packers are concerned about any of this? I mean, they they're not restructuring his contract. He's doing this. Is this an Aaron, another Aaron Rodgers flex? I think it is, but he also has to think about his future. I mean, if he doesn't want to stay around the NFL and go into the front office or coaching, he's got to set up his life for the next 30 or 40 years. I mean, Alex Trebek was the host of Jeopardy forever. Yeah, I think they said 37 37 years. So can you imagine that? Aaron Rodgers retiring at 40 and then doing the show for 30, 35 years? I mean, he'll go into his retirement. He's got to think about his future and... A lot of NFL guys don't know what they want to do after they're done playing, and a lot of guys struggle with that. Some go into business, some are successful, and some don't know what to do, what to do with their money. It seems like Aaron Rodgers, you know, has a pretty good idea that he wants to become a, a host, and maybe that could lead the the Jeopardy hosting job could lead to something else. I mean, you never know. Look People. at Strahan; he's got about twelve jobs, right? Well, Strahan is just on another level. I mean, he's been climbing slowly he certainly you know, has. through this. And it's like soon, I don't know what, what's going to happen next. I mean, is he going to be hosting the Oscars? Is is he going to be like The Rock? Is he going to go to to the movie screen or something like that? You never know. I mean, Strahan has a pretty good idea, but we've seen so many other guys struggle. You know, beyond football, what am I going to do? I mean, I can't just sit around the house. I mean, 35, 40, 40 years old. I still have another 30, like 25, 30 years before I retire officially. I'm happy for Aaron Rodgers, Lou. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, he enjoys it. He's a curious guy, smart guy, so forth, always looking for new challenges. So uh, we'll see how it goes, see if there's a, a big ratings bump. You know, he may bring a new audience to the to the four and uh yeah the jeopardy folks might like that like we said you know never a dull moment one of the worst kept secrets in the draft is uh new york jets you know i think they've fallen in love with somebody at number two we're 
pretty sure it's going to be Zach Wilson, and the inevitable happened. Sam Darnold gets moved along. We had talked about perhaps Denver, the Washington football team, but uh, Carolina once, I think, as this Deshaun Watson business has gotten uglier and uglier and he kind of pushed his mobility to the side and Carolina's like, we need to make a move. I don't know if there were any other suitors. I think both sides, you know, got what they wanted. I mean, I think the Jets got a, probably a little bit more than they than they could have, knowing that he had to be moved. But uh, I think it's a good move. I think Sam's going to do well in Carolina. What do you think? I think it's a win-win situation for both parties. You, The Jets got rid of Sam Darnold so they can clear the way for the number two pick. It is going to be Zach Wilson, so he can, if he picks up that offensive system, he's going to start right off the bat. And Sam Darnold, that a change of scenery for him was needed. He's 23 years old. He came into the league, he was 20. He didn't have a coach that could communicate things to him. Adam Gase is not the, the easiest person to get along with, and that marriage didn't work. He also didn't have the weapons. He didn't have an offensive line. He didn't have a running game. He didn't have the wide receivers. And the one year when Robbie Anderson had... They seem to have good connection. Robbie Anderson almost went for 1,000 yards that one year, and the Jets didn't resign him. Robbie Anderson bolted for the Carolina Panthers. Now they get reunited with his favorite weapon. He has Christian McCaffrey, Lou. That's huge. That's something that Teddy Bridgewater was missing last year. He didn't come to Carolina without having the thought in his mind that Christian McCaffrey was going to miss the entire 2020 season. Now he gets him healthy. Sam Darnold can can check it down to Christian McCaffrey a hundred times during the season. And nobody is going to, you know, look upon that. And now he gets to work with a very energetic, uh, very detail-oriented Matt Rule. And he gets a chance to to work with Joe Brady, who is this, you know, genius offensive coordinator who helped Joe Burrow have that sensational 2019 season, which propelled them to be the number one overall pick by the Cincinnati Bengals. This is the best situation for Sam Darnold. If he can't succeed here, you can forget about him because this is his opportunity. And if Joe Brady is able to you know, get a good season out of Sam Darnold, then Brady is going to get a head coaching job in 2022. He was already interviewed for some jobs, but if he can work this miracle, so-called miracle, but I think the Panthers need to address their offensive line, but I like their weapons, DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson, David Moore, and then I already mentioned Christian McCaffrey. That's a pretty good start. Darnold can't succeed there, especially with when plays break down, he can make plays outside the pocket, he can throw the ball downfield, something they weren't able to do with with Teddy Bridgewater last year. I I love this move. I I think the Panthers, they realized that they weren't going to get the quarterback that they wanted because the top three, top four guys are going to be gone. And this is the next best thing. I, I love the move. I really do. Well, I think especially especially for Sam because again, like you said, he's still very young. The weapons where and we've talked about this over many of our shows is where you land as a young quarterback. And we normally talk about this, you know, with guys being drafted. But Sam being twenty three, this could be like him getting drafted again, right? And where you land. So it seems like the other pieces are in place. Now, are they a perfect team? Do they have no holes? No. But they're certainly not the mess that he went to when he went to New York. You mentioned Matt Rule. To me, he seems like more of a teacher. And I don't know if that comes from just the because he's recently from college. And a lot of those guys on his staff come from college. But I know... That from, I guess, following Andy Reid for at least the last seven years, and even a little bit in Philadelphia, that he's constantly stresses being a teacher and all the people on his staff being teachers, which means they're developing players. Where I don't think anybody has mistaken Adam Gaze as a developer of players 
at any stretch. You know, I don't I I can't think of anybody that has anything positive to say about Adam Gaze. I don't know. I mean, in forever. You know, I think the only except for Peyton except Manning. for Peyton Manning, right? Peyton, Peyton had a good experience with him, but he's Peyton Manning. I think he knew how to play before, well before he got to Adam Gaze. So all those things kind of line up. And I think when Matt Matt Rule, I think he had interviewed for the Jets job around the same time, right before they hired Adam Gaze. And from what I'm reading and what I'm hearing, he hit it off pretty well with Sam. And both were very excited about the uh, possibility of working together. So here now they get, you know, that comes a little bit further down the road. Sam's got some scars, so maybe that's good. He's gotten maybe gotten that out of his system. But everything you mentioned, absolutely, no no question at all. But one of the interesting things is when I saw, you know, a little bit of a press conference when uh, Fitterer, and again, it's lying season, so you can't believe anything these guys say, but doesn't take us out of uh, selecting a quarterback at number eight, which just is whatever. Okay, let, let, let's see what happens there. But with that number eight pick now, you can maybe add one of those shiny new toys if a Kyle Pitts falls, or at very least, one of those, wide rec- one of those top wide receivers might be available. Uh, yeah, the situation, I think, is going to continue to get better. And the fact that this coaching staff is young, willing to develop. You mentioned Joe Brady, uh, that kind of Sean Payton-type system, which I think, again, Darnold is going to excel in. I, I think he's going to do very well. Is he going to be a star, a superstar? That remains to be seen. But I think he's going to be, at very least, an above-average quarterback in this league to that potential. The ceiling, I think, is still very high for Sam. He was supposed to be the savior for the New York Jets when they picked him at number three. I remember the owner gloating about it and saying that, hey, we picked Darnold. He's going to be the next Joe Namath. And they never surrounded him with any weapons. I mean, how do you expect a quarterback to win if you don't do anything to protect them, at least I don't care about like, OK, you don't surround them with a good running game or any pass catchers, but you don't even give them an offensive line. You don't even give them a chance. The Jets didn't have a good defense uh, a lot of those years that Darnold was there. So that was always laughable to me when teams draft a quarterback early and expect them to be this magic man. It's one thing when you're like in your 30s, you've already been down this road before. Maybe you can insert, you know, a so-called veteran and he can do some things because he's been in the fire before. But how do you expect a rookie? The expectations are at an all-time high. Surround him with weapons. Well, Darnold goes to the Panthers. Now they have weapons around him. We'll see if he can get it done because a lot of people have given up on Darnold. I have not. I think this is... as perfect of a situation as it could get for him you mentioned does it take him out of taking the quarterback with that number eight spot I don't think it does because say if Trey Lance or Justin Fields falls there why not they could pull the trigger because Teddy Bridgewater isn't going to be around he's going to get traded somewhere else or released at the very least they have given him permission or his agents to seek a trade so yeah absolutely Denver might be a possibility because the former GM, he used to be a he used to work for the Minnesota Vikings in that front office when they picked Teddy Bridgewater back in 2014. So in my opinion, the Denver Broncos might be very interested in bringing in somebody like Teddy Bridgewater for a lower draft pick and create that competition with Drew Locke. I think that's the next domino to fall. And I always wonder like The Panthers made this deal with Sam Darnold, but who else was in the conversation? Like, why didn't the Bears try to trade for Sam Darnold? Because you knew it was coming. Why are they trying to sell everyone that Andy Dalton is going to be their savior? It just looks really foolish, to be honest with you. Why weren't the Bears on this? I mean, we knew Sam Darnold was available. You know, the Panthers didn't give up a, a King's ransom for him. You could have walked away with like a day two pick in this year's draft and you could have had him. I mean, the Panthers gave up a couple of picks in in next year's draft. I just always wonder, like some GMs do a good job and then some GMs are just, 
They don't deserve to be a general manager of an NFL team uh, based on th- what they have done and what they. I'm talking about you, Ryan Pace. I just I wish Sam Darnold all the best. Um, I think this is again a perfect situation for him. If he can't succeed here, then I would give up on him completely. But I want to see how he would do with uh, you know having some weapons for for once. But I think the Panthers need to go offensive line at number eight. I think they'll have a chance there for someone. Uh, they need to protect Sam Darnold a bit. They have some pieces, but they don't have the blind side. They don't have that left tackle. And if they can address that with the number eight overall pick, I think that that's the direction that they should go in over some young rookie quarterback. Wide receiver, you know, is another way to go. But like you said, I, I would say offensive line. Again, it depends on who falls. You know, if Sewell falls in their lap or Slater falls in their lap, again, doing my due diligence, looking looking at your at, at your list, you like Sam Cosme as a tackle. Would you like him that high? No, I don't think I like him that high. I think he would be a perfect uh, candidate for somebody like uh, the Chargers Further at down. 13. Yeah. Or maybe like the Vikings of 14. He would be a perfect candidate for the Colts. I mean, Anthony Costanzo retired. He, he would be like perfect for that scheme, for the Colts scheme. I think those are the, the landing spots for him. I don't think Cosme is going to be a, a top 10 pick. It seems like a lot of people you know, love, myself included, we love Panay Sewell, even though he doesn't have that perfect arm length that you would feel comfortable with completely. Um, I always wondered, like, we, we've seen some left tackles, and I'm talking about left tackles, that have succeeded, that have gotten, gotten over it. Panay Sewell, I think, measured in 33 and 1.8s. It is a little bit smaller than the rest of the guys that get taken with those top 10 picks. But I remember a guy by the name of Joe Thomas who went to the Cleveland Browns and and played for 10 years and was one of the best offensive linemen in the game, or maybe even ever. He was just so technically sound that I think he his arm length was like 33 and three-fourths, I think. And then there was another guy, a guy that I'm very familiar with, Joe Staley, who started his career at right tackle but moved to left tackle. His arm length was about the same as Panay Sewell. So to me, if you're a technically sound offensive tackle or you're very athletic like Panay Sewell, I think you you don't need that that 34-inch arm length to, to be successful. But I know that some people have argued that maybe Panay Sewell is not a tackle. He should be a guard. I think Rashawn Slater should be a guard just because of the way he moves. The way he gets to the second level, because the way he pulls and traps. I've never seen a left tackle do that. And I just think he would be more successful from the interior because, you know, a lot of teams run those zone blocking schemes and, and you know, offensive guards and centers, they need to be able to move. Kind of like those Denver Broncos, you know, old schemes under Mike Shanahan. I think he would be a perfect scheme for a zone blocking scheme, but I like Slater as an offensive guard instead of an offensive tackle. But Benay Sewell is so damn athletic. He's so fluid with his kick slide. It would be a shame for him not to to get an opportunity to, to be that left tackle. And I think we'll talk about him a little bit, I think, when we talk about the Bengals. So, you know, at, at number eight, Carolina can't, I don't think they can go wrong. I mean, unless they go really, you know, off the board, which I don't think they'll do. But I think before we move on, I just wanted to hit this real quick as far as gay. I mean, he is the most vilified. Who's more vilified as a former head coach, Adam Gaze or Hugh Jackson? You asked the tough question, <laughs> don't you? Well, I guess it's just more of a more of a rhetorical. Because I don't think either. <laughs> <laughs> is I, because whenever you hear anything about Darnold, about Tannehill, Adam Gaze is is basically made out to be like almost he like was a negative influence on both guys, and I get the results you know speak up for Tannehill for sure, and we're about to see what happens with Darnold, but I think we're going to see it come up, and then Jackson, it seemed like. He did a great job or a decent job when he was you know, in Cincinnati as a coordinator. But between the Raiders, the, the Browns, I mean, I, do either of these guys ever show up in coaching ranks ever again? I guess that's the more pertinent question. 
I'm sure they will. Hugh Jackson has has made has friends all over the place, and I'm sure like Arizona State Herm might Hitch, give sure, her an Herm opportunity. Or, uh, Marvin Lewis and Marvin Lewis is there, so uh, yeah, I I think that's probably a good one. Gase, not so much. I don't know if he has any friends. Well, Gase needs to go to Alabama because if you want to like repair your reputation, you go to the Alabama Crimson Tide and and they make you head coaching material again. This is what Bill O'Brien is doing. He's trying to get back into the coaching ranks, whether it's in college or or the NFL. And this is what Adam Gase needs to do: just become an offensive assistant, an analyst. Maybe they promote him to quarterbacks coach or offensive coordinator out there. I think he you know may Nick have Saban to go likes as to like an unpaid grad assistant because for Saban to bring on somebody, typically they're going to have to be you know a teacher, a communicator, somebody that can develop. And he hasn't shown that problem. He has to learn that again from an outsider looking in. That's what I would say. Yeah, that's, it's amazing how has how has Adam Gase survived. The, this coaching game because <laughs> I mean you you can sit on your couch or in your office I mean near the computer punching numbers whatever I mean sending out emails you don't have to communicate with a lot of people you could be on zoom nowadays but as a coach you're out there physically with your players whether you're a quarterbacks coach an offensive coordinator you're in meetings for God's sake I mean you're you're like a professor you're a teacher at school you're going over schemes you're going over defenses. You're going over what you're going to do during this practice, during this game. In this profession, Lou, you have to be able to communicate or you just you chose the wrong profession. You could be a smart wonderkind where you know the X's and O's, but you have to be able to communicate it with your players because what's the point? If you know it, but if they don't know it, they're not going to be able to execute it on the football field. And this is what happened with the New York Jets. Right, and you you're seeing more and more. I mean, the league, I guess, from a player's perspective, outside of maybe quarterbacks lasting so long into their careers, then there are some other positions as well as on the offensive line. But the players are younger and younger, coming into the league with less and less experience. You have to kind of be that conduit from the college setting to the NFL they they've changed the game is is leaning more towards the college game t- to facilitate that so guys can play sooner you look at teams they're all trying to get younger so with younger players you need you know that communicator teacher type and again I keep pointing back to Andy Reid because I listen to everything he says and uh, maybe I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, but he does preach that and everybody he hires brings on his staff as well as developing their coaches, developing players, teach, 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 and that. So The NFL, and you know this, it's like a recycled factory. It really is because guys get second, third chances. I'm sure. It it doesn't really matter. They never bring in like outside guys. It happens very rarely. Well, they do, but it's it's slow in coming when you have the majority of people that have been in and around for a while and they typically hire people that they know. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's like a GM. He can fail in one place. In second place, he's still going to get a job somewhere. Maybe not as a GM, but as a college scouting director or a pro scouting director. Same thing with coaches. I mean, Adam Gase, I mean, you talk about this, but he's failed with the Miami Dolphins, and he failed to develop a quarterback who went on to the Titans and had a great couple of years under Arthur Smith so that says something and then he goes to the Jets and the Jets were like willing to not even talk to anybody else I mean Gase was their number one target and they played him in the division twice a year so they kind of they knew what type of guy he was I mean this wasn't like some some foreigner coming in it always amazes me it's not about what you know but it's about who you know and unfortunately I mean the NFL works exactly like this because you know, I always criticize GMs who just who don't know what the hell they're doing, but yet they keep getting a second job, a third job, and they just keep staying around. But it, it's fairly obvious that 
They haven't figured it out. They haven't gotten smarter. Usually when you get fired the first time, you take away some lessons. You, you know, you start thinking what you did wrong. You start to analyze yourself. Like if I get a second job that I'll do it all differently. What did I do wrong? You write some things down. You kind of just stare yourself in the face a little bit because you want to get back into it a second time, whether it's a head coach or a GM. You want to prove to the entire world and to yourself as well that you can get it done. But it seems like some guys just never learn. All right. So what we do know about the Bengals is they're sitting there with the fifth pick. Pretty sure they've got their uh, quarterback of the future uh, as long as we'll see how he comes back from this injury. But it's all signs point to Joe Burrow being the guy. Free agency, you know, they've got some pluses and minuses, but, you know, so they've helped their team a little bit, but they lost some guys that you would have thought Carl Lawson, I think, won. That was just an interesting one. I don't know if he just wanted to get the hell out of there, uh, but he did sign with the Jets, so <laughs> I'm not sure what's going on there. And then they bring in Hendrickson for about the same money that, that Lawson got. Is that a push? I thought Carlson maybe had a little bit more upside. Hendrickson is more of a you know high-motor guy, maybe took advantage of the rest of the guys on that on that defensive line that were helping, you know, helping him rush the passer, but neither here nor there he's in the fold and he'll be playing he'll be starting there for them brought in a woozy and hilton as corners ogan joby as, as a ta- defensive tackle just a one-year deal brought in uh, riley reef ricardo allen they've got some players that are, are going to play i don't know that there's any huge difference makers in there but you've got some solid players that are going to be able to gobble up a lot of snaps so so to speak. AJ Green, I don't, you know, losing much there. William Jackson the third was kind of an up and coming corner. They think maybe a woozy could fill in that spot. BJ Finney goes to Pittsburgh. Mackenzie Alexander goes to, to Minnesota. I think free agency for them, I don't know. Maybe they come out just a little bit ahead of where they were. Players they gained versus players they lost. A lot of things going on. Obviously, a lot of holes. They're sitting at five. They're not a very aggressive team when it comes to making trades. If you look at their draft picks, it looks like every pick is their own pick in every round except the seventh. So a lot of different ways to go here. I'm guessing O-line, wide receiver, uh, maybe another edge rusher, a lot of holes. Backup quarterback, certainly. I mean, not at the fifth pick, but obviously that's something that they'll need to address. But first and foremost, the health of Joe Burrow. That's where you got to be. So maybe, like I said, we're talking about Panay Sewell. We're going to talk about him here at the number five pick. That's got to be a home run, right? I mean, they cannot, they cannot afford to miss on this pick. So they, they've got to get one of these guys. Do they go with the shiny new toy? Or do they say, no, we got to protect our franchise? That's the question. I think I know what you're going to say, Alex, but it's the Bengals. Who's their guy? Well, the Bengals have actually done pretty well in the draft, like recently. Mm-hmm. I mean, last year they they hit a home run with their first two picks. Joe Burrow looked really good before he went down with that serious injury, and then they they hit it with T. Higgins in the beginning of the second round. And I mean, Logan was, Logan Wilson too, third round pick. I mean, he looks like he's going to be a solid guy starter. So they yeah. they've done well, and uh, considering that they don't have a full scouting department like they don't have 20 scouts on staff i mean they only have still like three four five guys that's it and they've got like a a gm who is also like the the college scouting director uh tobin so they do more with less resources and i'm impressed with that but you got to take care of your you know your investment at quarterback joe burrow just went down i mean hello Isn't this a sign that you need to address that offensive line? Jonah Williams, who they drafted a couple of years back, he hasn't been able to stay healthy consistently. So I didn't see him as a left tackle when they drafted him, I think 10th overall a couple of years ago. Why not move Jonah Williams inside and then draft left tackle like Panay Sewell at five? Kyle Pitts, it's really intriguing, but... Unless you have, you know, your offensive line ready and and set, and they need a tight end, no, no question about it. But you you got to go tackle, and you need to address that offensive line a few times during this draft. Even though you got Riley Reef, but he's a guard, maybe right tackle. 
you need to address the offensive line if you want to make sure that Joe Burrow is going to stay upright, if he's going to be healthy. It doesn't matter how many wide receivers you have, how many tight ends. I mean, if you can't protect your million-dollar investment, I mean, we saw it in the Super Bowl. We keep going back to that. If you can't protect even somebody like Patrick Mahomes, you're not going to be able to win. And uh, I think that's where they go. Tight end should be a high priority, but not with that fifth overall pick. Well, forget about they, uh, forget about the position for a second tight end because I think I think Kyle Pitts is a little bit more than that. I mean, he's just I I think to me a huge wide receiver that can play some tight end. So as devil's advocate here, the shiny new toy. If you've got Pitts at rated as your I don't know second or third best player in the draft and the offensive linemen are double digits you know maybe you know a little bit further down what do you do i mean it's seriously i mean that that's you know does they i don't know who was it brian billick or whatever says you know need is the worst evaluator do you break i guess conventional wisdom do you go with need here? I mean, is it at the fifth pick? I mean, you have a chance. I mean, if you believe this is like a generational play, this guy is just the second best player, or first or third or fourth best player in the draft, don't you have to take him? If your grade is the same for, say, Sewell and Pitts, you definitely take the offensive lineman. Because what's the point of ha- having Kyle Pitts if Joe Burrow can't get him the ball? It's, it's nice to have shiny toys, but right. wide receivers don't take you to the Super Bowl. Tight ends don't take you to the Super Bowl. Teams that go to the Super Bowl or compete in the playoffs are teams that can control the line of scrimmage on both sides of the ball. I mean, that's the truth. So I guess the I mean, question it's, it's you have sexy. to answer yourself is this. Is the gap between, say, Sewell and Slater, how great is it between them and maybe an offensive tackle that you can get at pick 38. To be honest with you, I would go like in a different direction with you if we're talking, if we're starting to get into the draft talk a little bit. I think Well, that it's pretty important if, for them because that's, you know, they, they're still building their team. They got a ton of holes. I think at 38, they're not going to get a tackle of, uh, of a Panace well, no, or Rashawn no. Slater. But, They're not going to do that. And the guys that we've talked about, even Cosme, even Christian Derosaw, those guys are going to be first-round picks. And therefore, you're settling for another guy in the second round, settling with the 38th overall pick. And not necessarily that they have these offensive linemen rated highly in the second round. If those guys are gone, then what are you going to do? So you didn't address Panay Sewell with the fifth overall pick. And then at 38, you don't have anybody like rated that highly, especially at tackle, at left tackle or possibly right tackle, what are you going to do then? Are you going to take a project in the sixth or seventh round? You didn't address the position, and you certainly didn't do it in free agency. If you think Riley Reef can play left tackle, then okay, I, I tend to differ. Well, I think they have uh, him with, slotted with in it right for now, but that's assuming that Jonah Williams is going to be able to be healthy and be at, be at left tackle. But that's the, the question is, how big is that gap between those guys and, say, somebody that you can get at, at 38? Because it seems like, and again, I don't, I don't know. I mean, this is just based on what I've read and what, what we have at our site. There are, a, again, not at that level, but there are guys that, are, that can play that would be available at 38. History shows to us, and this isn't taking Kyle Pitts out of the conversation because Kyle Pitts is a different animal. I mean, I haven't scouted a tight end like this in in 15 years. I haven't. And we're going way back to the Vernon Davis days. We're going way back to the Kellen Winslow Jr. days. I haven't seen a tight end like this. I mean, we could go back to like Tony Gonzalez when he was drafted by the Chiefs back in the day with the 13th overall pick. Maybe that's as close as it gets, but Pitts is faster than than Gonzalez and Absolutely. presents more he, of a matchup nightmare. Like you know that. Yeah, I mean they can line hit you, you can line that kid up anywhere. I mean, it doesn't matter who covers him, it's a mismatch problem. So I guess that's but, that's that's the debate and I guess the dilemma that it faces the Bengals. And it's a hard decision because 
you know, I don't know, inside that room, okay, can we take one of these guys that's rated a little bit lower as a lineman at 38, coach him up, not maybe not be the, have the ceiling as somebody that, that Sewell or Slater may have, but can play well enough, and then we'll also have this weapon that nobody else has. I mean, outside of Travis Kelsey or George Kittle, this is going to be a problem no matter who they play. History shows to us that you can find playmakers, pass catchers on day two. And those day two guys, whether they're drafted in the second or third round, outplay those counterparts that are drafted in the first round. And it's just, I keep going back to that. If you look at the history of the NFL draft, even in the last 20 years, taking an offensive lineman in the first round is much safer than taking a wide receiver or a tight end. You know, diving in a little bit deeper. Those guys that were chosen in the top 10, I mean, they weren't transcendent type of guys. They weren't. I mean, TJ Hawkinson, Eric Ebron, Vernon Davis, Kellen Winslow Jr., maybe the closest. He had like a run for about four or five years before injuries kind of caught up to him. We haven't seen a tight end really become that transcendent type of talent. When you're drafting a guy in the top 10, you expect them to be an all pro every year. So that's probably a case against Kyle Pitts as well. If you take an offensive lineman in the first round, or especially in the first top 10 or top 15 picks, that's really a safe pick. That's as safe as it gets because you can plug this guy in if injuries don't take its toll. He can be your tackle for the next eight to 10 years if, again, durability doesn't catch up with him. And you can find pass catchers on day two. So even though I have Kyle Pitts as my number two player on the board behind Trevor Lawrence, and yes, I have him ahead of Zach Wilson. I have him ahead of Panay Sewell. But if I have a similar grade between Kyle Pitts and Panay Sewell, where it's fairly close, I take an offensive tackle any day of the week. Even though, again, taking the best player according to your board makes more sense. But what's the point of that if Joe Burrow is not going to be my quarterback? If he's going to get injured in year two, in year three, injuries will take its toll. I need to protect my number one quarterback, and it starts with the offensive line. And if I can get an offensive lineman in the first round, if I can get an offensive lineman in the second round, if I can get an offensive lineman in the third round, I'm going to repeat it because that's what the Colts did when they got in trouble with Andrew Luck. When Andrew Luck was getting injured every year, you know what? Ballard stepped in, and he was like, hey, I'm addressing that offensive line. And that's exactly what he did. He drafted Quentin Nelson, and then he turned around and he drafted a right tackle, or I I had him rated as a guard, but he became a right tackle for him. And he addressed that offensive line, and Andrew Luck looked pretty damn good after that year when they drafted all those offensive linemen. He had like a career year, and you know it it was good to see. And this is where it should start with the Bengals as well. Well, it is the Bengals, so more than likely they will. Again, I guess if, history, if we're talking about history, <laughs> they're going to find a way to mess this up. But, you know, I joke. But I don't think they really can mess this up regardless of the way that they go. But, yeah, I mean, the offensive line certainly is more important. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a huge question they're going to have to answer because, again, need versus, you know, the best best available player. But when that need is offensive line and you've got, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars down the road to your quarterback, you got to protect them. So that's, uh, yeah, it remains to be seen. But if they feel about Sewell uh, like some people do, not that he's going to be an Anthony Munoz, but, you know, that type of movement skills and athleticism. Perhaps, you know, that that's going to be the best pick. Let's just say this, Lou. Both guys get me excited. I mean, Kyle Pitts is only 20 years old. Oh, I mean, yeah. Things that he did... Things that he did as a junior in the SEC, and that's the best conference, nobody could cover. And we're not talking about only linebackers and safeties. When you watch the film, not the highlights... We saw him being guarded by some top corners in yeah, this draft. He said. was beating them. Yeah. All I mean, right. He, We're talking about J.C. Horn. He can We're line up about Patrick anywhere. Sertain. And it's a ma- and it's a mismatch. 
But Panay Sewell is also 20 years old. So assuming he grows even more into his body, he's already strong. He's already athletic. The mental stuff, it comes with more repetitions and with more stuff. So both guys are intriguing in that way. They're both young, and therefore you can mold them. You can coach them. You can teach them. It's just a matter of how great do they want to be. How important is football to them? Because on film, you see it with both guys. They're tremendous prospects. Do they have holes? Absolutely. Everyone has holes. But if I can get a left tackle for the next 10 years to protect Joe Burrow, that's the way I'm going to go. Because if I'm taking a Kyle Pitts with that fifth overall pick, those type of picks usually get GMs fired. And again, so we'll go beyond that. I mean, it would be a great, I guess, a quote-unquote problem to have where you're deciding between two guys that are going to be huge no matter which way you go. But like you said, I mean, that offensive line probably is the the smarter, safer choice. But God, it's going to be hard to pass up. And that's even if Pitts is there. Maybe Atlanta just takes him at four or somebody somebody trades ahead of him uh, to get Pitts. Yeah, it remains to be seen. Uh, They are kind of thin at wide receiver when you just have uh, Tyler Boyd and T. Higgins as really – you know, Higgins becoming established, Tyler Boyd, we know what he is. They need a burner, obviously. They don't have much behind those guys. Uh, tight end, we talked about that. Uzoma, I think, is really the only one on the roster that uh, that has had some significant playing time. Seems like they're pretty set at running back with Mixon. Jesse Bates at free safety, I think, is is turning into a good player. I mentioned Logan Wilson earlier was one of their draft picks last year that I think they're high on. So, you know, those are some, some areas where they're going to need a lot of depth and a lot of any position. They, they can't go wrong. But the one that kind of scares me the most is that if Burrow isn't quite ready right away, that the only quarterback with experience on the roster is Brandon Allen. Do you think they make a move here? I think they need to bring in a veteran, and uh, I think that would be the best way to go, to to be honest with you. They could take a quarterback like on day three, like a sixth or a seventh-round guy, but they can't expect that guy to, to be the backup. I would Another veteran, there will be some other cuts possibly, and, and make a move somewhere. I, I think that's the way that I would go. I also think corner is a problem for the Bengals. Even though they brought in a Wouzier, I don't think that's enough. They need another corner. Yeah, Trey Wayne's has been up and down. I don't I don't know if that's, you know, a, a solid position. I think getting Mike Hilton from Pittsburgh, I think, is gonna be a, a big But boost. he's a nickel corner. Right. Mike Hilton. Absolutely. Is a nickel he's corner. not gonna play. They need somebody yep. outside. Yep. So I, I think that's a huge one. Uh, I think also, you know, bring in another defensive lineman out there to to give you some more flexibility and yeah they put some again, money they put I, some money in dj reader uh hendrickson obviously uh ogan Joby's just a one-year deal and then they have sam hubbard again not much past that and this league has shown us anything you're going to need a rotation of five or six guys at minimum right yeah absolutely i mean you you need to have defensive linemen out there you need to rotate them because i mean the, those guys aren't are not going to play like a high snap count. Even if they get Pitts or they get Panay Sewell and they have a good draft. I mean, can you imagine in that division, the Bengals, you know, winning more than like five games, even with a healthy Joe Burrow? They were they were in some close games. The division, I think, is is in flux right now, but in a good way. I mean, the Browns are getting much better, and may you know, I mean, we'll see when we do our our, our predictions, if you would, as we get closer to the season, that uh, Cleveland's going to be near the top of that division, or they'll be selected. I mean, they certainly have the most talent, I think, roster wise. I mean, Baltimore is going to be a problem as long as Lamar Jackson is healthy. Uh, Pittsburgh, that's the the question mark. I mean, and that's the one that I think maybe Cincinnati has to point to over the next couple of years is leapfrogging them to get out of the basement because, you know, it's going to take, I think, a few more drafts or free agencies for them to really go head-to-head with Baltimore and Cleveland, although they did play Cleveland pretty tough, and they always do uh, in the two games they played them this year. So, yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard. You know, they're going to have, arguably, again, we'll see if he continues to develop as, you know, Joe Burrow might, could turn out to be the best quarterback in the division at some point. 
Not sure if Baker, how much better Baker Mayfield is going to get. Lamar, I think we're seeing kind of where he goes. He may still continue to develop as a passer. I don't know. But Burrow certainly has the traits and has shown the ability when he was healthy to be that guy. A lot of steps they have to take to even come close to contending. But I think the first one is perhaps, and perhaps it may even be this year, be able to leapfrog the Steelers. Yeah, there it is. I said it. All right, interesting that you you said. I, I think they're still going to finish fourth. Oh, yeah. in this division, <laughs> but they got a chance. I think it's they got a chance to do what to leapfrog and finish and third. And then Pittsburgh maybe goes five and eleven. I don't see that happening. I think the the Steelers are going to address the running back position. I think they're going to try to rely on on the running game a little bit more instead of Ben, you know, throwing it forty five or fifty times a game. Last time the Bengals had a winning record, by the way, two thousand and fifteen. When they went twelve and four, and right. who it, was the quarterback? Who was the quarterback? Who was the quarterback? Andy Dalton. That's right, Andy the Dalton. Red Rifle. Unbelievable, Bears fans. I mean, there you go. You got some hope. Andy Dalton, Carson Palmer, and then you know if we forget before Carson Palmer. You know there was a, a quarterback by the name of out of Oregon. I forget his name. What was his name? Achilles oh, Smith. Achilles Smith. That's right. Achilles Smith, who just didn't live up to. Uh, to his billing uh, in that draft, he was supposed to be you know, that that game changer. Let's go back even him. further. How about David Klingler from Houston? Boomer Esiason. <laughs> well, Boomer right? was good, <laughs> but just guys that they took near the top that didn't work out, and that's you know the Bengals being the Bengals. All right. Well, before we get out of here, we've been tracking the final four. Yes, this is a football show, but you know there was some football flavor to the final four. Uh, it looks like the big bad bully that we thought Gonzaga was going to be, the Gonzaga Invitational Tournament, turned out to be the Baylor Bears. They just came out and just dusted the two teams that they play. They're just tougher, quicker, faster. And then on top of that, they shot threes, and they were the number one shooting uh, three-point team in, in the country throughout the year. So... Houston, they just leveled, and both actually both games. I mean, it was they were like a heavyweight fighter. They just came out, punched those teams in the mouth, and I think was again. I'll invoke Mike Tyson here: is everybody has a plan until they get hit in the mouth, and then everything goes to hell. Uh, neither team really recovered from that opening uh, flurry, if you would. And uh, yeah, it was just a, an amazing display of in-your-face defense. And three-point shooting and just everything else. I mean, I, that was pretty much a dismantling of a Final Four. Baylor Bears, there you have it. I, I picked the Baylor Bears. I mean, we, we did the prediction before even the, the tournament started. I said it was Baylor, and uh, it turned out that way. Not like a, a huge pick because they were one of the best teams, you know, during the season as well. But I had a feeling that the battle-tested group was, was going to show up, and we saw different types of guys, but during the Final Four, they just obliterated Houston and Gonzaga, who was supposed to be this unbeaten machine. And I was worried, to be honest with you, and I'll tell you when I was worried, because Baylor crushed Houston. And when Gonzaga had that tough game against UCLA, they went into overtime and, and Suggs hit that unbelievable three-point shot. I was like, oh my God, this is what happens. One team kills another team and walks into the final with an easy win. And the other team was battle-tested. I mean, they, they went through it. They UCLA pushed them to, to the wire, and they hit that last-second shot uh, to win it, the buzzer beater. And I was just like, oh, this is going to propel Gonzaga to the next, to the final, and therefore they're going to win. So I started doubting myself there. But the way Baylor came out in the beginning, I mean, they stormed out to like a 9-0 run. They had a 10-point lead at halftime. And then it seemed like Gonzaga was creeping up a little bit, right? Uh, coming into the halftime, it looks like they made a run. And you would think, okay, maybe in the second half they'll come out and they'll, they'll show their teeth. Well, Baylor came out and just punched them in the mouth again. So... Uh, Scott Drew group, I mean, they, they've been through a lot. You know, we, we could go way back to the early 2000s when, you know, this program was in flux. I mean, just in flux when Drew took over this program and he just built it up slowly. And, and here they are. They, they won their first national championship in, in their history. 
Yeah, well, it's hard to say. I mean, last year they didn't play the tournament, but they were pretty damn good last year as well. I mean, Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler, Macy Oteague, I mean, great shooters. Davion Mitchell's ball pressure, his defense against Suggs was just suffocating. Now, Suggs had a pretty decent game, but he had to work his ass off to really get anything. That was just a, just an amazing performance. I think the the memory, I think, might be more so than Baylor winning, and it's unfortunate, is just the classic game that Gonzaga-UCLA was. I mean, UCLA, uh, you know, from first four to final four, and they gave them everything they wanted. They probably, I mean, they, they had every opportunity to win the game, but Juzang at the end there with the, you know, the follow-up to tie it up, and then the bank was open on Saturday for... Uh, Jalen Suggs, and he, he makes that shot. I mean, I don't know if that'll replace the Christian Leitner shot that he hit against Kentucky when Grant Hill makes a three-quarter court pass and Leitner makes the little move at the end. You're thinking, what is he doing? He doesn't have time. And he just was so patient and drilled it, which put them into the Final Four that year. Uh, Kentucky wasn't as good. Uh, Patino was, was the coach at that point. It's one of the best tournament games I've seen in a long, long time. And the sequence that Suggs had is just going to go, will also go down in history where he blocks the guy at the rim and then gets the rebound and throws a laser, maybe three, again, a three quarter court bounce pass for a layup. Just unbelievable. And they talk about Suggs, and I guess the amazing thing was, I, I guess I didn't know this until, you know, watched more Gonzaga basketball, is that he was Mr. Basketball and Mr. Football in the state of Minnesota. So, and he turned down a lot of top Division One schools to be a quarterback to come and play at Gonzaga, which, you know, led me to, you know, some other, you know, would-be quarterbacks, you know, were great high school players. Like Allen Iverson in Virginia was just an amazing quarterback. Ronald Curry went to North Carolina, played both sports, and eh, never really was much in college at either of them, but ended up playing in the NFL for a short time. But anyway, it had just been interesting to see to see him play football in college or watch Allen Iverson just at that size. I mean, he he might have been uh, Kyler Murray before Kyler Murray. But at the end of the day, yeah, you just got to tip your hat to Baylor. That was just a clinic in both games, and there was no doubt at, at any time. Yes, Gonzaga made those runs, but it seemed like that just took everything out of them to even get to within 9 or 10 points. But, you know, they were dazed and confused from that opening punch and flurry and never really recovered. Baylor, yeah, they were just the they were the bully. It wasn't Gonzaga. Well put. And I think, you know, the the Big 12 obviously had a tougher schedule and Baylor went through that schedule. And not to take anything away from Gonzaga, who had a great season, they were unbeaten, but it wasn't a normal year. If Gonzaga played in the Big 12, would they be unbeaten? Probably not. And Baylor has, has been through the grind, and it certainly paid off in the end just playing a tougher schedule. All right, gang, that is going to do it for us this week. Number 25 is in the books. We'll be back next week. Uh, maybe there'll be another trade. Who knows? Number four is definitely in play in the NFL draft. And some of these quarterbacks are still moving. Maybe not the big names, but uh, it'll still be interesting nonetheless. So for Alex, I'm Lou. Peace!